is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. Chocolate is a plant-based food or drink in which the main ingredient, the seed of a tropical tree, is ground and melted and mixed into something wholly new. Sometimes spices or botanicals are added, and in the past, this was all done by hand. It sounds almost like making a potion, right? That's certainly what some folks in 17th and 18th century Mexico and Central America thought. It turns out many women were prosecuted at that time for reportedly casting spells with chocolate or outright poisoning people with chocolate potions. In the last episode, we spoke with Dr. Christina Wade about the connections between medieval alewives, female brewers who made part or all of their living brewing and selling unhopped beer known at the time as ale, and our modern depictions of fairy tale witches with cauldrons, cats, broomsticks, and pointy hats. And we found out from Dr. Wade that there is no such connection. It's a fanciful modern story that serves to bring some attention to the very real lives of women at a certain time in the past, but doesn't actually reflect historical reality. Today we're going to talk about chocolate-making women from previous centuries who were directly accused of witchcraft, and find out if those accusations were founded in any way. Grab yourself some tasty bean-to-bar chocolate and follow along for this spellbinding tale. In issue three of Cacao Magazine, published in the fall of 2020, chocolate writer and friend of this show, Megan Giller, wrote an article titled Poison Your Lover with Chocolate and Other Advice from 17th Century Witches. She told of a string of cases in which women were accused of malicious chocolate-related misdoings, usually of the supernatural kind. As we head into autumn and approach Halloween, Samhain, and Dia de los Muertos, I felt like it was the perfect time to reach out to Megan and ask her about this fascinating story from chocolate history. Megan previously appeared in episode two of Bean to Barstool, where we discussed the differences in how we talk about and describe beer and chocolate, and how these two artisan fields can learn from the sensory language of the other. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes so you can hear more of Megan's insights. Join me now as Megan and I discuss the historical connection between chocolate making and witchcraft. So Megan, why don't you share with us a little bit about what you're currently working on? Yeah, so I actually went back to grad school. I'm in an MFA program at the New School for Creative Writing. So that's been really exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, of course, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about chocolate as well. (laughs) So I'm writing a little bit less about chocolate, but I've been leading um, private chocolate tastings quite a bit for, um, it's been all virtual in the past year, but it's starting to return to New York City a little bit. So that has been very exciting and fun to share really great chocolate and the stories around it with so many people. Yeah, for sure. So last year, uh, in issue three of Cacao Magazine, you wrote an article titled Poison Your Lover with Chocolate and Other Advice from 17th Century Witches. Can you share a little bit of the background of that article and what got you interested in that topic? Sure. That title always cracks me up. Um, I was very happy when I thought of poison your lover with chocolate. Yeah. So, I mean, basically several years ago, I was looking into stories about women and chocolate and I really 
didn't know exactly what I was looking for, but I knew something historical. And so I started asking academics that I knew if they could point me in the right direction. And Catherine Sampek, who um, is at Illinois State University and has studied chocolate for a long time, kind of pointed me to a couple scholarly articles that she thought that I would think were interesting. And I read them and just thought they were completely wild. The stories in them are just, you know, crazy and something I'd never heard before about women and chocolate and witchcraft and actually thousands of women being prosecuted for all of this kind of stuff, you know, hundreds of years ago in Central and South America. So that's where it started. And then nothing ended up happening with with it right after that. But I, I ended up coming back to that story for this little web series I made called What Women Ate, because I just couldn't stop thinking about these like wild stories I'd read about these witches or supposed witches. And then I knew that when Cacao Magazine was doing their issue all around women, I was like, well, I love these stories so much. What do you think about me writing about them again? And, and they said, yes. So it's sure. very glad. Yeah. You mentioned this was in Central America, looking at 17th and 18th century. Can you share a little bit of why the focus was limited to that geography and that time period? What was going on in Mexico and Central America at that time? Yeah, well, I mean, in yeah, in Mexico, Guatemala, and Belize specifically, those are the, the, where we have accounts of this happening. So, I mean, first, more people were were drinking chocolate during that time. It had moved. I mean, I guess there's some debate about whether people of all classes and castes had been drinking chocolate forever or if this was something new. But by that point, it was it was more of an everyday drink and accessible to people. And then on top of that, the Spanish Inquisition was going on. So all of these people, all these women were actually, and some men, were actually prosecuted by these Spanish courts. And so that's a big reason why we have the records of it, because it comes straight from the Inquisition courts. And I guess it's also worth noting that they only prosecuted people who are of Spanish descent or Spaniards. So, you know, anyone indigenous would not have been included um, in the record. So we don't know what happened with all of those millions of people. So it just wasn't recorded. It's not necessarily that they weren't falling victim to this, this witch hunt. That's right. They weren't necessarily prosecuted in a formal court, but they probably were punished by society or their community or, you know, something else. And we just, we don't know. We can't reconstruct what happened. Sure. Well, let's look at one specific example. You mentioned in 1762, a Maria Maldonado. Can you share a little bit of her story and her ultimate fate? Yeah. So so she was a wealthy woman. And one of her uh, ladies' maids named Maria de Casanova accused her of witchcraft. And so Maria de Casanova said that Maria Maldonado, who was the the lady of the house, had basically gotten her to bring four witches to the house and come up with a spell to to make someone, a a guy, fall in love with her. Mm -hmm. And so there's even a record of the recipe, and it includes all sorts of things you would not want in your chocolate, like (laughs) pubic hair and fingernail clippings and part of your clothing that you need to burn them and then put the ashes into the chocolate. Yeah, those chocolate. are not the inclusions we're looking for in our <laughs> Right. Yeah. Maybe not the inclusions that we enjoy today. But there is actually a spell that that Maria de Casanova actually like said in in court. Like this is the, the spell that we were supposed to say. And it was on two I see you, on five I take you, I break your heart, I drink your blood. By the peace of the queen of the angels and her precious son, you are with me. 
So oh. if anyone wants to practice this magic, they now have all the ingredients. <laughs> Is there any record or indication of what motivated uh, Maria de Casanova to accuse the lady of the house? You know, I I don't think there is much, but if you're kind of reading between the lines, a lot of these accusations came when there were power imba- imbalances, whether it was, you know, a servant who worked for, for someone or there was a racial or, or kind of like caste difference. And it really made people with privilege kind of scared, actually, of what someone might say about them, because if they were accused, then their privilege almost didn't matter at that point. So it was a real way of getting even. I mean, you also saw a lot of friends accusing each other. So yeah, it really exacerbated the power dynamics that were already behind relationships. Did that go the other direction at all? Did you see people in power kind of subjugating the lower classes with that threat? You know, I'm sure that did happen, but I didn't find as many examples of that. I guess the one example that I guess you, I don't know if you could argue this is power or not, but you know, it's definitely a gender difference. So all of these nuns in Chiapas, Mexico were accused of poisoning the priest. And it really, I think the story is that it came about because they were drinking chocolate during mass and the priest was like, you know, you need to stop that. You need to pay attention. And so then supposedly they poisoned him and then got their way and got to drink chocolate during mass. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned that this was mostly happening to women. There were a few men. You and I have spoken before that even today, there is sort of a gendered connotation around chocolate and this like assumed association between women and chocolate. It sounds like that carried back centuries to when this was happening. Yeah, definitely. I mean, women were mainly the people preparing all the food, especially chocolate. So that's part of how that association came to be at that time. But, you know, I I think chocolate was also a really good vehicle to to hide something in um, because it was dark and, you know, muddled. So you could put whatever you wanted in there or accuse someone of putting whatever you wanted in there. I mean, there are cases of men being accused as well, but that is a whole kind of separate topic that deserves its own article and like podcast (laughs) about why and like what positions of power they were in and, and that kind of stuff. With liquid chocolate being such a good vehicle for that, do you have the impression that this was actually happening in some cases of people really using chocolate for uh, whether it's for spell making or potion making or whatever it is? We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. 
The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. I mean, I think people probably were putting stuff in chocolate and or casting spells. I don't know if they actually used these pretty gross ingredients that are supposedly used in all of the documents, but, or if it, you know, that was kind of this figment of the imagination or kind of nightmares, you know, that people are like, oh, and then all this disgusting stuff is in there. I, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's all of these parts of women that that we tend to ignore as a society or like don't mm. want to acknowledge and that's what's going in the chocolate you know that's interesting sure but, yeah but i do think that um there was some amount of it going on and whether it worked or not is a different question <laughs> sure do we have any documented cases of someone being poisoned by this way i mean the the nuns did poison I, I i believe that the the bishop i think i i said he was a priest but he was a bishop i mean he became very ill so whether it was really from the chocolate or something else we don't know so i don't know if there's a case where it's like cut and dried that someone really was poisoned i um, try to take people's chocolate away <laughs> that's right i know We're very serious about that yeah. So this wasn't just limited to Mexico, as you said, there was another story in your article from 1695 in Guatemala. Yeah, yeah. And that is one of my favorite stories, actually, just because, you know, I was talking about how women were the ones who were preparing food and, and chocolate in, in particular. But so in this court case, it was reversed. The, the husband was preparing chocolate for his wife to drink in bed. And he used that as evidence that he must have been bewitched because otherwise why would he possibly serve someone else? And it's, especially in bed, that just seems like adding insult to injury. So he said that his wife had bewitched him and it wasn't just that, it was it also, well, the, the official quote is so that he could not be a man on all the occasions that he desired to have intercourse with his wife. So he had a little bit of a erectile dysfunction problem. So and created an elaborate excuse to exactly. that out his problem. Sure. It couldn't not possibly have been something going on with him. It was that right. his wife had clearly bewitched him in all these evil ways. And did the court fall for that? I mean, yeah, the, the woman, her name was Cecilia. She was convicted and she went to jail and she supposedly brought a bunch of chocolate with her. <laughs> <to jail. laughs> I spoke with Dr. Christina Wade. She is a historian looking at the history of brewing in Europe, specifically in Ireland right now. And we were talking about the history of some witch trials there uh, that were brought against some female brewers during the medieval era. And there, there's some evidence that some of those accusations might have been motivated from a business standpoint to try to get women out of commercial brewing as it became more commercially viable. Do you see any sort of culturally consistent motivations for how this was being used? You mentioned kind of to level the playing field a little bit, but was there anything kind of behind that? Or was this more misogyny for its own sake or, or what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe more misogyny for its own sake, because I so many of these drinks were made in homes, right? They weren't made for the most part in businesses, or I didn't see a lot of cases where it was cafes or anything like that. I mean, there's obviously economics at work because people are employed by others who are 
accusing them or vice versa, but it does seem like it's something very much on the home front. But I mean, I think it points, you know, a lot, it explains a lot about what's going on kind of underneath things with, with their society. And I'll, I'll just read you what Martha Few wrote in her article, Chocolate Sex and Disorderly Women in late 17th and early 18th century Guatemala. And she says that chocolate acted as a central vehicle of women's ritual power and was a flashpoint for women's disorderly behavior in public settings. So it was a way to punish women, but not necessarily from a business angle or to drive them out of some industry. Can you clarify a little bit what it would mean to have been making chocolate at this point? I guess we haven't explained what that would have looked like for somebody to be doing this in the home. What, how was chocolate being consumed and what would it have meant to be making and preparing that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I honestly don't know if they would have been making it from scratch, but there's because there's kind of two parts to making chocolate, right? Some of them probably were starting with cocoa beans that they would have to shell themselves. So, you know, take the husk off and then grind them down on a matate, which takes hours and hours and hours. Um, and so at that point, they would be formed into cocoa balls or cocoa sticks, depending on where you were, Central or South America. I don't know if, if you've seen that or if people who are listening have seen it, but it's either a ball or kind of a, a long stick that's really pretty solid chocolate. It's 100% and it's roughly ground. And with the balls, you can drop them in liquid and mix it up using like a molinillo. Or with the sticks, a lot of times you'll grate some into the water or milk. At this point, it would have definitely been water. Chocolate was most likely a pretty savory drink at that point too. So it's a lot of labor to produce chocolate. And it's not as easy as obviously heating something, heating up some Swiss Miss in the microwave, which is what we can do now <laughs> if we choose to, I guess. <laughs> when you say savory, do you mean it actually would have been spiced in a more savory way? Yeah, it would have been spiced. It would have had achiote and black pepper and spicy peppers. And I believe that they probably were using honey and maybe some sugar at that point, but I think sugar was still pretty expensive. So I'm not sure the everyday person would have been using something like that to sweeten their chocolate. Because, you know, chocolate was always a savory drink until it made its way to Europe. And that's when some form of sugar started being added. So this chocolate would have been a, a staple in most households, at least of a certain income level, presumably. Yeah, that's right. They would have, and you know, some people actually used it as part of their, either part of their meal or like a meal replacement sort of thing. Like it's not mentioned in these scholarly articles, but in that area of the world, people will mix corn of various varieties with chocolate. So it's almost more like a porridge that mm -hmm. will be thicker or thinner depending on where you are. And so that will kind of sustain you. It's usually you drink it in the morning, it sustains you for a good part of the day. So we talked about some of the specific stories in your article. I'd love for you to just share a few of your other favorites, uh, whether from the article or ones you weren't able to include. I mean, I think the story about Cecilia really is my favorite because it's just so juicy. You know, like you're not really, you don't really read documents from the 17th century that often that talk about like impotence, you know, <laughs> it's always kind of implied, uh, but in, in a lot of things, but, you know, there's so many stories of like the conquistadors trying to find like, you know, something that solved impotence and constipation. It's like everything they came across was tried to solve those two things. But I love that story in particular. So Megan, are there any modern connections that we see between spiritual practice and the use of cacao or chocolate? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there are 
point blank comparisons between what people were doing then and what people are doing now. I do think that there's still kind of this tendency to gender food and especially chocolate. And one thing that that I think uh, Joan Bristol and Matthew Restel write really well about is about like these fears around women spiking hot chocolate weren't really about that. They were about women's changing roles in society. And I think that's still true about our preoccupations with a lot of food, among other things. And just, you know, that women who didn't fit within a certain status quo were prosecuted, whether it was then or now in different ways. But I think that the thing that kind of overlaps to me is this whole trend of ceremonial cacao, which isn't necessarily specific to women, but is popping up everywhere. Ceremonial cacao, it seems like started with these cacao ceremonies in North America and Europe that I don't know very much about whether they're related to real ceremonies that would take place in Central and South America, but it's now morphed into a lot of shops that offer chocolate bars and confections and all sorts of things that are supposedly made with ceremonial grade cacao, although I, to be honest, have no idea what that really means, but there is still this, you know, connection with this mysticism and some sort of indigenous culture that they're kind of, I don't know, they're crafting this story around that in ceremonial cacao. You and I have spoken previously about the way that chocolate does seem to evoke some fanciful language from us. Like it kind of puts us in the mindset of doing that. I wonder if they're just trying to sort of corral that into something organized. I think so. And also that a lot of times it's not described as chocolate, even if it is a hot chocolate or chocolate bar, or even like, you know, a truffle or bonbon, it's actually described as cacao, which I think evokes something a little bit different for people and something more mysterious and wild for some reason. With that uh, gendered connection between women and chocolate, I think that's something that most of us recognize broadly. Are there specific ways that you think that impacts craft chocolate, like ways that we see that playing out, that connection? Well, I mean, women are definitely seen as the main consumers of chocolate. If you look at commercials around chocolate, for example, I think that's, you know, it's always this, I'm talking about mainstream chocolate now, but it's always a woman very seductively devouring a piece of chocolate, right? But I think that spills over into craft chocolate. And I do think it's interesting that it's still a very male dominated industry, but that we assume the consumer is always female. And in that way, we haven't really broken from commercial chocolate brands at all. But then when you do look, I mean, I don't have information about specific brands customers, but even looking at my blog, like I would say the majority of readers are female. And so it is interesting that there is kind of this, this big divide. Yeah, for sure. Changing subjects to a little bit lighter note as the seasons change into fall, what are some of your favorite fall seasonal chocolates or traditions or experiences around chocolate that you like to have as it starts getting colder? Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely always excited for drinking chocolate. That's something that you don't really want in the dead of summer, but um, unless it's iced and then it is very delicious, (laughs) but warm drinking chocolate, I'm very much looking forward to that. And then, you know, I think I just bake a lot more in the fall and then around the holidays. And of course it's with chocolate. My mother-in-law always makes the chocolate chip cookie recipe from my book when we go back to, to their house for the holidays. So I'm of course looking forward to that, but it's a little bit more hardcore, everything chocolate in in my house, even the dough. Right. So 
so that that will be coming up very soon too and of course i mean you know it's a strange thing to look forward to halloween when you're in the craft chocolate world because you know most of the chocolate featured is commercial chocolate but i always love handing out candy to kids and also thinking about, um, I mean, it seems like more people are thinking about chocolate during that time. So there's, a, it's a little bit easier to connect with people around it and give them chocolate that, that, you know, I feel like is equitably made. Megan's chocolate chip cookie recipe is a favorite in our house, and you can find it in her excellent book, Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution. I'll link to her website in the show notes. Our own fall traditions tend to include great fall beers like pumpkin ales and Oktoberfest lagers, and of course, plenty of good chocolate. We love using Bean to Bar chocolate in fancy s'mores, and I'm working on putting together some great s'mores recipes for an upcoming project. We recently drove to Fibonacci Brewing in Cincinnati for their autumnal equinox party, and spent a lovely fall day in their grassy beer garden shaded by towering oak, maple, and black walnut trees. We drank their fresh hop ale made with local hops and their Peppo pumpkin porter brewed with locally grown pumpkins. In the evening, they lit the campfires and we sipped pumpkin beer and made s'mores with chocolate from Cultura Chocolate in Colorado. It was a beautiful start to autumn. Whatever your fall traditions, I hope they include good friends and the bewitching potions of your own choosing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool. Mm-hmm.